Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I am joined today by two of TechCrunch's absolute finest. In one corner, we have Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, hello. Hello, hello. How are you, Alex? I am fired up and feeling good. I actually have like a free afternoon. Don't tell anybody. I'm telling you. But that means that I'm going to be able to like do some administrative catch up and like maybe read an email. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm so happy for you. (laughs) (laughs) The other laughing voice you hear in the background there is none other than our own Mary Ann Azaveta. Mary Ann, I hear you've had nothing to do lately and you've been totally relaxed and nothing's breaking. (laughs) Too much breaking news, Alex. Too much. It's been crazy. We're all a little frazzled might be the word, under fire. There's just so much going on that we've really had to like cut and hone this particular episode. We had to throw stuff in at the last minute. It's busy out there. There have been weeks in equities history when it's been a little thin. That has not happened for some time and seems to be accelerating. So today, just to give everyone an overview, we're going to talk a little bit about how Elon Musk's bid for Twitter is being backed just for a second. Then we have three deals of the week, Line, Truist, and then SoundCloud buying Musio. Then we're going to talk about health startups in a post-row environment. That's kind of a US-specific story but I think it has global impacts. Then we're going to riff on the earliest stage and what's going on with Backstage Capital. And then we'll close with, well, what other than fintech drama, what's going on with Plaid and Stripe and why we ended up with the best Twitter exchanges we've had in some time, (laughs) thanks to that that thing. (laughs) But let's start off with the breaking news from the end of this week, which is, Natasha, that apparently Elon Musk's friends are ponying up a pile of ducats to help him buy Twitter which seems a little strange to me, but who is doing that? Oh my God. So a group of around two dozen investors, including some of our favorites, and by favorites, I mean people that we (laughs) like to talk about on the show because yeah, it's fun to to hold them accountable. Sequoia Capital, Andreessen Horowitz, Binance, and then Fidelity have invested over 7.1 billion in his bid to back Twitter. The way I found out about this news was every morning I wake up, I see what the most read piece on the site was, and this was it. And I was like, I think it's a typo. How is the 44 million bid still in the news? Of course, it is because these investors have shown their stakes. <laughs> Marianne, there's also some money from Qatar and also the Saudi Arabian holdings going to be kind of held during the sale. How do you feel about that? Well, also Oracle co-founder Larry Ellison, he wrote the largest check. Hmm. At $1 billion. So I haven't really thought about how I feel about any of this, to be honest with you, Alex. I'm just, I'm perplexed still that this is happening. I think it's all still surreal to me. So it's just... It just keeps going. I think the Larry Ellison thing is interesting because Mm -hmm. rarely do you reach out to the Death Star for aid if you want good PR. But also, I think it's important to remember the historical connection between the two people because Larry invested a billion in Tesla back in the day. I know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I presume that's done pretty well. And so maybe he's just recycling some of his returns back into Elon as a sign of goodwill or thanks. Yeah, yeah, maybe. And speaking of recycling returns, I think Andreessen's involvement is especially interesting. They have chipped in 400 million, which is the same size as their seed fund. So that just tells you where their priorities are right now. (laughs) Isn't it also, the amount of money they're investing in India they recently announced? They Yeah, so I they're investing 500, 500 million. Yeah, 500, 500 million. million. Okay, but very mm-hmm. close. Yeah. It's only off by $100 million. I mean, come on, Marianne. I mean. That's it. <laughs> but I just think that's wild that we're the same amount that a venture capital firm is investing in seed stage startups, it's also investing in Twitter. That's just hard to get my head around. It is. I'm just going to be rude. I think it shows a lack of focus. Like, I don't know what Andreessen's doing with this. Like, it, I know they're now a registered investment advisor versus a traditional VC, so they can do lots of things like this. But like, it feels strange to lock up $400 million into a public company that has a historical growth issue. It feels more like a virtue signal that they're with it, with the Elon crew to me than anything else. And I think it's a little bit silly. But I do want to say Saudi Arabia and Qatar, or also Qatar, depending on kind of where you are in the world, not exactly paragons of free speech. 
And so oh, I find no. it I find it ironic that we were told so consistently that Elon is going to bring free speech back to Twitter, which I guess means more trolls and Nazis. And then we got two of the most repressive regimes in the world helping finance it. I mean, None of this makes sense. None of it. What do they know that we don't is like my final question, because definitely virtue signaling happens. And maybe I'm just too optimistic, but I'm like that much money. There's something that they know. <laughs> Good question. Mark Andreessen has been posting on Twitter. And I use that in the technical sense, not the crass sense about Elon taking over Twitter for some time. So to me, it really does seem to be kind of a political investment from Andreessen more than a business deal. And mm-hmm. I think it's strange to treat an RIA like a PAC, a yeah. PAC, a political action committee. It's, it's an American slush fund, essentially, that we kind of allow through a loophole to power and essentially buy bits of Congress. But in this case, it's kind of the analogy to hold up. So, all right. Uh, that's it for Twitter today. I think we can Thank we can God. move on until Monday morning when something else inevitably uh, happens. Totally. Uh, all right. Let's talk about some deals of the week. We got three really great ones kicking off with Line. Now, Natasha, I was entranced by this business model. And so can you tell us what the company does and how it is inclusive in the fintech world? Yeah. So Line is a public benefit corporation. They're in the news this week because they raised some money. They raised a 7 million equity financing around 18 million in debt. And their whole goal is helping dole out emergency lines of fund to people as low as $10 without charging them interest or demanding proof of credit history and income. Two factors that traditional loans and credit services may be looking at that can leave people out. Over time, that trust is supposed to grow. So the CEO, Akshay Krishnaya, says that a customer's ability to request larger checks will grow as they prove that they can pay it back. Yes. What I love about this is it takes the decision-making process about who is credit worthy out of the hands of the traditional American credit agencies and puts it inside the company. And so they'll lend you some money. And if you pay it back, they'll lend you some more. And if you pay that back, they'll lend you some more. For a very flat, low monthly fee of like two bucks a month, you can access the service. And so for folks out there who have been stuck with, you know, Marianne predatory payday loans and all sorts of these just awful financial products, I kind of dig it. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I mean, any way to help boost financial inclusion is great. I do love the model. I am curious, how else are they generating revenue besides this $2 a month fee? And then also one other quick thing that struck me is that the CEO told you that most people, majority of people do pay back. And then they get more money. So it feels like they're betting on this risk is going okay. Yeah. At the risk of sounding too optimistic, it feels like their incentives are pretty aligned here. Lines revenue, which, and they say right now they're profitable, will only grow if people pay it back. And at the same time, they'll only make more money if people show up and trust them and get bigger checks over time. I'm just curious about the the cost of capital here. So let's say, is there a flat interest rate that these lines of credit or loans are charged? So no interest, but I know we mentioned that $2 starting fee. It actually grows if you yourself are getting bigger checks. Okay. They're, ah. they're framing it as a monthly subscription fee. You can call whatever you will, but it's kind of like every month you pay this much and you will get instant access as a result. I've never heard loan risk priced in that fashion, which makes it an interesting experiment, which makes it good for a startup. Agreed. It's kind of the point. Right. <laughs> the only like other, I think the biggest reason, honestly, I wrote about this company was the founder's story. So the entrepreneur grew up really poor. His family grew up actually extreme poverty. And he talked about how when he was first thinking of this company, a few things that he had to push back on. One was that lower income people are a risky population to give money to. He kind of is partially building the business to disprove investors in that way. And he also found himself having to explain to people that they can't just ask a friend to Venmo them 10 bucks for the bus. 
And it's a lot more complicated depending on what friend groups you have and where you are in your life. So he really thinks that the reason his startup will succeed is because he's going to bring the customer perspective into the product. Because not every fintech product, as <laughs> right. you both know very well, is built by someone who comes from that background. Right, Marianne, I'm sure this is not the first inclusive focused fintech that we've seen, though. No, no. I mean, thankfully, there are a lot of them, actually, that are focused on inclusion. And, and I agree with you. The founder's background is one that just makes makes you stop and think. And definitely his perspective and being in the shoes of his customers will help tremendously. It creates an empathy and compassion that a founder who comes from a different background probably just couldn't have. They could try, but it's not the same. So I agree with you that that story really resonated with me as well. And I, I really, I'm rooting for this company. Now, Marianne, let's stay with fintech and instead focus our attention on a different company called Truist. A merger of several mm-hmm. banks has bought a startup with a very interesting name. So I'm curious, what was the deal and why did they do it. Yeah, I found this to be really interesting. First of all, I got the exclusive on it, so that's always fun. But Truist is a bank that was a product of a merger between BB&T and SunTrust. So it is now the sixth largest bank in the U.S. It has about $488 billion in assets, which is massive. And it just purchased Long Game, a 12-person fintech startup that's raised a little, I think, over $20 million in venture capital. So Long Game is not actually a game per se. Instead, it's a way to get people to think more long-term about about finances and does, if I read this correctly, have a bit of a Gen Z focus? Is that because of gamification? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Long Game, which its name implies, is definitely trying to get a younger demographic to think more long-term about their finances. And so the way that they're trying to draw in this demographic is through a gamified finance mobile app. And it's trying to just get people to learn how to save, to learn more about finances, to engage. And they're doing it by things like using prize-linked savings and casual gaming. The reason why all this also is very interesting, it just goes to show you that these banks, of course, they're competing with fintechs. But in many cases, they realize they need them. And Truist probably saw a gap in its customer base and realizes it needs to reach this younger generation. So it's looking at long game as a way to attract this younger demographic like Gen Zers and millennials. I completely agree. We often talk to startups going up against the behemoths and they're saying the things without as high stakes because they're not there yet. But this is kind of one of those data points that maybe can give some of them hope that people are very much paying attention and aren't just going to build their own in-house response to this trend. I appreciate that. And I wonder, I guess it seems like a lot of fintechs are going the corporate venture capital route Mm -hmm. as well. So I'm thinking that we might see more like Plaid. We'll talk about them later. But Plaid has created an accelerator of sorts. I view all of them starting to pay more attention to the very, very small startups. Yeah. Forced to be reckoned with. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of these larger financial institutions realize that it just makes more sense to buy a company that's already doing something that they want than trying to build it out on their own. I also have to say that Long Game is led by a a young lady named Lindsay Holden. And so there's a lot of things to like about this story. Female-led CEO, this company got picked up by Truist, one of the largest banks in the U.S. And I think it's just another example, like we said, of incumbents and fintechs working together. We don't know how much they paid for it, though unfortunately. True. Darn it. Just as a small note, Anna Heim and I wrote over on TC Plus an article this Thursday looking into corporate venture capital and why we think it might lead to a more active M&A scene this year because the startup exit window is closed. Oh my God. And so we might see CVCs going a bit more on the strategic side than the financial return side and snap up some companies they purchased. And we thought about Flexport and Coinbase as two companies that have active CVCs that might fit that profile. I should have really included whatever Truist is doing, but it's true that playing the long game is a good call. So we can move on. Mm -hmm. Now, my deal of the week is about SoundCloud buying, uh, I'm going to go ahead and call it Musio. 
Fair enough. M-U-S-I-I-O. It's an AI music curation tool. And what it can do is it's listen to music a lot faster than humans can. And essentially pull out the kind of insights that companies like Spotify and other people use to create, I think, cool playlists that are kind of designed for you. Spotify, for me, every week sends me a new playlist of stuff that it thinks I'm going to like based on a number of factors. And so for SoundCloud to buy this company, to me, it kind of goes to show that they want to perhaps break out of their current model, which to me is I go to like the Natasha SoundCloud page for all the newest beats or whatever. Instead, maybe they're going to help people just kind of listen more ambiently, Natasha. was my read. Yeah. SoundCloud has always been kind of like one of the more, in a very endearing way, a stunted platform in terms of how much innovation it's adding to how it shows music. Like it feels kind of nice to go to something that doesn't have too many bells and whistles. You scroll through the platform and you go to your favorite artists. That said, I don't think this one also rang alarm bells for me because I was like, it just sounds like it's going to get a little bit better, a little bit more curated and maybe be like a place I go to more often because I will say like I only go to them when I'm looking for specific mixes yep. versus a Spotify I go to for like my go-to. Yeah, something that I found interesting in reading this story is talking about how AI curation can have an impact on artists. For example, there's this case that Amanda wrote about that Spotify's AI managed to like uncover some rare B-side of some band and then that went on to become that band's most played song on the platform and they said that even the band's front man didn't recognize it when he heard it playing in a bakery one day. So I, wow. I I think it's interesting that SoundCloud's incorporating AI into what it's doing. So yeah, I agree. This is this seems like a good move. Alex, I know you covered last month, two months ago, about Epic Games buying Bandcamp. Is there something to connect between <laughs> these two news items or are they just different music-related tech news? I, I mean, we could also throw in the fact that Spotify now has a its first like in Fortnite streaming oh, thing, or maybe it was Roblox, one of the two. I really think that we're seeing more technology go into music and more music go into technology. You know, I think that that's partially because we spend more time in digital environments, be it game environments or just kind of like standard browsing environments. I think that music is going to become a bit more pervasive and we're figuring out how to do that and how to do it intelligently. My last thing about this, though, is I love the idea of bringing technology to music because I think it's going to help smaller genres. Like if you go to the Spotify top 100 most played in the world, it's all names that you know, right? It's just the biggest kind of current names in music. But if you dig down in to the genres, it can be a little harder to find your way around. And in the progressive metal world where I spend a lot of time, I'm still discovering bands that I've never heard of, even though I've been a fan of the genre and a small genre for a decade. Mm -hmm. I hope that AI can do a better job of bringing people new stuff that they might have missed and kind of make it a bit more accessible and also help smaller acts is kind of my overall vibe. I wish we had a dollar amount though, Marianne. People should disclose sale prices. Agreed. Ugh. All right. Now we're going to shift tone a little bit and talk about something that's pertinent to the United States, the technology industry here, and also the startup world. But this does have broader kind of global implications. So if you're not in the U.S., stick with us. But if you're in the U.S., this is a bit more applicable to you. This last week, a potential ruling from the American Supreme Court was leaked and then published by Politico. It indicated that the Supreme Court justices are leaning towards striking down the federal right to abortion access and abortion health care in the United States. And to say this is a controversial moment is an enormous understatement. The abortion debate, such as it is, has been a flashpoint in American politics and culture for a very long time now. And I'm not going to get into the hows and the whys and how we kind of got to today, because that's not really in our context. But this does have an impact on major technology companies and startups. And Natasha, you wrote a very great digest of some startups and how they're responding that are working in the broader fertility space. Yes, thank you. The news is still happening. We're still figuring out what exactly is going to happen. But we wanted to talk to some startups that had really built their businesses around making a very human and important right abortion more accessible and how they prepare at a moment like this. 
My piece right now has a lot of statements of how people are reacting. So I thought maybe we could just walk through them and kind of just get a more temperature and mood check. The mood, as you can tell, is not great. So Hey Jane is a virtual clinic. They have really tried to fight against anti-abortion legislation, and they've built a digital abortion clinic that actually delivers abortion pills to doorsteps. When I spoke to their founder, they basically said that they're expecting that to be now the safest and potentially most accessible way that some people who are seeking abortions might be able to access the service. A big hurdle, though, will be the lack of education among consumers on medication-induced abortions, and they are not a nationwide service yet. They're only operating in six states. So, I mean, I feel like it just put a spotlight on them to have an increase in demand and also the importance of education in this moment. Can I ask about that? What role do we think startups should play in the education conversation? Because American sex ed in general is poor and in many states nearly non-existent. So are we kind of just as a culture exporting the requirement for more comprehensive education on these topics to startups? And how do we feel about that, Natasha? Yeah. As one founder put it, Lauren Burson, she basically said that this is kind of the wake up call potentially that everyone needed in order to be louder about what should go and what shouldn't and what is important here. Even as we were preparing for the show, language around abortion is a topic that we have to be more thoughtful of and should be considering more. So yeah. I think that this looming decision is causing a lot of startups to have to kind of share their stands on it. I will say startups are being a lot louder about it than big tech right now. It's unprecedented for something like this to be leaked. And so I think a lot of people are also trying to figure out what to say and how to say it. One of my questions about what Hey Jane does or is doing and how it could be impacted, would it be legal then for this company to have its pills delivered to someone that lives in a state where abortion is no longer legal? It's tough. In this kind of situation, the CEO, Kiki Friedman, basically said that states like California and New York, they operate in, should also prioritize legislation that would protect out-of-state patients. And so I think that was kind of a way to answer that, which is like people can be prosecuted if they accept these pills and their state does not allow it down the road. I can't speak as like a source of authority yet, but I think that means that like legislation will definitely have to go. But I mean, I think the broader thing here right now is like so many of the startups over the past two years during the pandemic have been digital health companies that have received funding. So to see them threatened and potentially have to pivot in the coming months, I think will be like just a story that keeps on being important. Mm -hmm. And not just small startups. I mean, I think uh, Hey Jane has only raised millions of dollars in the single digits, but Maven, for example, Natasha, another startup that we've been talking about in this context is actually a unicorn, for example. Mm -hmm. hundred percent. Yeah. Maven hit unicorn status during the pandemic. They have built an entire business around how to help employers offer benefits around the health spectrum to their employees. And so something that's threatening one of those basic rights and human rights will, will definitely be something they have to deal with. Yeah. I'm not surprised that we're hearing startups make a lot of noise about this. I mean, Natasha, you've written about how hormonal health is a big opportunity and just the growth in the number of fertility startups out there. So there's a lot of players in this space to have them make noise fits with my always read of their ethos. Marianne, though, I'm a little bit disappointed that we haven't heard more from big tech companies. I mean, there is a history of activism amongst tech companies. Microsoft endorsed gay marriage, I think, in its state of Washington far in advance mm-hmm. of the, the now possibly at risk Supreme Court ruling that legalized it nationwide. So tough. Should we be expecting more? Well, of course we should, but I don't think it's shocking that we're not. I think that big tech can often be afraid to be vocal when it comes to controversial topics. I don't know if they're so much scared about shareholder reaction or investor or public image. You know, we can't 100% say why, but it is disturbing. And Devin, one of our reporters, did an article about eight ways the tech industry could step up to protect abortion rights. And in his article, he did mention big tech and saying that one thing that they could do is provide more privacy guarantees. Yes. So that was a really good article, by the way. You should read it if you haven't. 
On that point, our security team wrote a piece about period tracking software and data privacy yes. and how there's a question about what if your data is sold and then people parse it and then people say, ah, you were here in your cycle and now you're, you know, what did you do? And I think that it really brings to my mind, it makes surveillance tech a phrase that feels less theoretical and yeah. more real, if you will. Yeah. I mean, his point when he was talking about big tech was that a, a lot of companies, very large tech companies like Google, Meta, and Amazon do track a lot of our lives by what we're doing on the internet. And they record that. He's just saying that even though it's not illegal in any state to get like treatment for diabetes or something like that, we don't need, I'm going to just quote him because he said it better than I could. The last thing we need is nosy authorities pressuring data brokers and tech companies for up-to-date lists on which of its citizens have asked for directions to abortion clinics, searched for and visited care providers and other strong indicators of what they will likely have to find as conspiracy to get an abortion. So he raises yeah. a really good point. I'm going to make one last little note about this, and then I, I know we need to move on. But Marianne, you do live in Texas, a state that has seen a boom in its technology industry, mm -hmm. both in Austin and outside of it. And we used to talk about how all the major tech companies were opening offices in and around your fair city. So this is not going to be a political issue. I think that major tech companies can avoid because they are active in these states and the states are going to put pressure on them to do things that they don't want to do. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to see a bit of a business v government, I think, yeah. thing. And I think that, I mean, I'll just be honest, I'm keeping score. Yeah. Personally. And it's unavoidable. I think you're right. It's so crazy yeah. how we're like talking about free speech and abortion over the past few <laughs> weeks kind of being threatened in such a visual and tech related way. I just, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's like maybe something with Elon Musk started as tech drama, but has evolved into this. And Roe v. Wade has been under attack since it passed. And it's kind of wild to see these things come to an inflection point in such a dramatic way. Yeah. At the same time. A, at the same damn time. At, at the same time. Yeah. I mentioned at the top of the show that we're a little frazzled. It's because there's been a couple of things going on, <laughs> and this is one of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My favorite example of this emotion that we're describing right now is there's this picture from a, a protest, and it was an older woman, and she's holding a sign. It said, like, I can't believe I'm still protesting oh. this shit. Yeah. And I just wanted to like, well, one, give that person a hug, but also just high five them for nailing the sentiment so perfectly in so few words. Right. How are we still having this conversation? I know. In 2022? It's unreal. <sighs> All right. Turning the page, let's talk a little bit about the earliest stage of startups. Now, Natasha, this is a thing that you and I love to vamp about. We love ideas. We love scrappy founders. Ooh. We love, you know, pre-PMF products out there in the market, figuring out what's going on. We love to see the future sooner. But there is some news going on in the world of the early and earliest stages. And I want to start with your scoop on what's going on with Backstage, because I'm not entirely clear yet on the news. So what's going on? Yeah. So Backstage Capital, for the few people that don't know, because they're a pretty popular popular fund yeah. was founded by Arlen Hamilton in 2015, all about underrepresented founders. It was really one of the first, if not the first fund that was so obviously dedicated to what it defines more as underestimated founders, but people who come from minority backgrounds. This week, they tell me that they reached 200 investments in those five or six years. And as a result of hitting that milestone, they're saying that they are now taking a minute to breathe and pivot to only invest in existing portfolio companies. And so they both hit a milestone, but it also seems like they're taking a pause now. So my question is, did they invest too quickly in too many companies and therefore kind of ran out of internal resources to handle new investing deals? Or did they run out of capital and therefore with a smaller possible next bucket of funds are simply turning inward 
forward to support their current companies. And to be clear, like they invested in 200 companies, they raised a bunch of money, they did the thing. I'm not trying to be rude, no, but no. also I'm confused and surprised by this news. It is super fair to be confused and surprised because it took me a second. I asked, I think all of you guys about like, is this rare? Is this unprecedented? And it sounds like we all agree that it is pretty rare and unprecedented for a venture firm to do this. But to answer your question, they're actually growing their assets under management. So they're raising a $30 million opportunity fund. They just got a $1 million fund from Comcast. And so it's yeah. kind of this weird balance of like, they're technically growing their money and their investing capabilities, but they don't want to back net new startups. So even if a company like Plaid, which we'll talk about, was to come to them and say, hey, here's a spot in our new round. This is one of the hottest companies out there right now. They actually would say no. And I asked them point blank, like, even if it's a really good company, you'd say no. And they said, yeah. So I guess my read of it is that they feel so strongly about those 200 companies at this point that they're just reserving it to give bigger checks to the ones that they believe in. It's, it's I mean, tough. the thing that, that comes to mind, listening to you talk about this, is March of 2020, March and April. Because at that time, the market was changing rapidly and a lot of VCs turned inward. They said, look, right now we're not doing new deals. We're focusing on the portfolio. Who's doing well? Who's not doing well? How much cash does everyone have? What support do they need? How can we be of help? And it lasted for you know, 48, 72 minutes, give or take total. And then everyone went right back to making new deals because the market changed its sentiment. But currently we are in yet another, Natasha, period of downward facing charts on the public markets and valuations and so forth. And so like, on one hand, I'm not surprised to see this, but also it doesn't feel like a win to stop doing net news. I agree. Let's be clear. Most investment firms, the way they grow is they raise their assets under management, they invest in their existing portfolio companies, and they accept net new investments. The argument yes. on Backstage's end is that they've outpaced a lot of what funds do in their entire lifetime, so they want to turn inwards. But I mean, yeah, it still feels not great that Backstage is no longer going to be backing new companies for now. They say it's the foreseeable future, but the way that they framed it is like the doors are open at Backstage. They're not currently adding new companies, but that could change one day. I think that as a journalist, this is a very helpful signal to be covering. I'm surprised they could have just stopped investing and we wouldn't have known, right? Unless someone tipped it onto us. So the fact that they're going out and getting ahead of it to me in a way seems like they want to do something in the future. They've always kind of been a venture capital that's pursued an atypical growth pattern. So yes. it's well, making me want to cover them more. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And the other context here is we're hearing that smaller funds are having a harder time raising successive funds given the changing market climate. The stock market's been punched in the face, which means that LPs have less money. And so there's less just kind of money floating around looking for new venture opportunity. And so that could be part of this too. 100%. I'll be honest. I was a little frustrated when they said that the market didn't play a role in the strategy shift because the market's playing a role in everything, even if you're an early stage company right now, which is the majority of their portfolio. Yeah. They said it's not. They said that this is their way of not having to triage their companies. But I have to say that there's no doubt that the market and just funds in general, to your point, changing strategy to deal with our new world is maybe subconsciously playing a role, <laughs> if not consciously. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see if backstage capital can eventually later on raise more capital and make a comeback to other stages of investing that aren't just firms they've already put capital into. But we are seeing a couple of other firms do some really early stage stuff, Natasha. Techstars has a, I don't understand this either. Early stage confuses me. Oh my God. They're making a fund for companies that are too early for their accelerator, which, what are they investing in? Like college kids that haven't... <laughs> gone it's, to college yet? Like what's what's before accelerators? Oh my God. The overfragmentation of seed is like all I think about right now. I wrote a column about this for TC plus use code equity. That code yes. still works, right? I hope. Okay. Try it. If it doesn't work, try it again. <laughs> 
Use code equity for a great discount on TC Plus. But I wrote about if the earliest investors keep going early, what is literally left? So I guess Backstage's news shows that they're actually considering right now nothing's left. Let's just focus on what we have. <laughs> I'm obviously paraphrasing. And then Techstars is starting a new fund that's going to back ideas that are too early to maybe go through an accelerator. So I'm thinking really like even pre-idea in a way. They are coming from a unicorn. They're coming from an interesting background. Care about an idea but maybe don't have the pitch down. Yeah. It's so essentially harder, it people seems. that are backable with a theme or a focus, but perhaps not a product or an idea. Cool. Oh my God. <laughs> All right. Um, my head hurts. <laughs> there's no excuse to not fund tons of underrepresented founders if that's what's going on. Cause that, you know. I wish I saw that as a, listen, I really like the Techstar team, but I was pretty bummed to see that not be kind of even shouted out in that focus. Felt like yeah. a very, felt like a layup for them to do that. But hey, they focus on un- underrepresented geographies. So I'm hoping that there's some natural overlap there. Cool. We're also seeing Valia or Valia, which is an early stage firm backed by Tiger that is also kind of putting together an early stage fund. And then a Four Capital has a new $150 million pre-seed fund, which is a lot of, that's a lot of capital for pre-seed. I think they say it's the biggest fund that's been dedicated to pre-seed in general. So I was like, I should be talking to a four more. <laughs> I have yeah, never okay, talked to them Okay, 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 okay. Blah, blah, is what I say to that. Pre-seed is just seed five years ago. So, so is true. it the biggest seed fund from five years ago? I don't know, but it does undercut the claim a little bit. Natasha, if I invent a new tranche of a startup investing, call it like middle age between series C and series D, and I raise a dollar for that. It is technically the largest ever middle-aged startup-focused fund. You are you know? so right. So- You're so right. I mean, I, that is, and that's why I'm kind of going crazy, as you can tell them I don't, because I'm just like, I don't know what is true anymore. I All I yes. can do is take these facts and think about them. But I don't know. Thank God for, for you and everyone else here, because I feel like we're all kind of leaning on each other more than we were when all the deals were hot and pretty boring in a way to yes. cover. Yeah, well, last year it was just like, well, they raised more money, everybody, at a much higher price now. What else could happen? As a last little caveat before we jump into the last section here, we are tracking the changing climate for startup valuations. And so we've written a lot about this on the site. So if you want to, just go to my author bio and click around. The gist is we are seeing different impacts thus far in Q1 data about where the valuation kind of declines are coming in. And so it's not the same across the board. What we're seeing in seed is a little bit more durable than what we're seeing in kind of later stage rounds, but that's not an entirely clear trend yet. So the data is shaking out. We're still learning. We're asking everyone questions. We're trying to figure out what's going on and our lens will clarify as we collect more information and process it. So expect more from us on this theme. And apparently we'll also be breaking news about the pre, 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 pre seed that I'm sure will be invented before you know it. (laughs) And just to wrap up today, let's go ahead and dive into one more thing. This is a return to the world of drama and we can put aside the sadness from before and instead have a little bit of levity to wrap up the show. Uh, ha, 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 Marianne, before we talk about the news, why is fintech the place where <laughs> it is always being kicked up? Why is this the stirred pot, if you will? I mean, I honestly, when I first started covering fintech, I thought this should be maybe a little boring, low key of an area to cover. And it has been anything but boring, anything but low key. There's a lot happening. And the latest this week involves two very large players in the fintech space, Stripe and Plaid. Stripe is worth about $95 billion. They've been mostly known for their payments technology. And Grid, our our editor in London, has covered them quite extensively. And then there's Plaid, which is another fintech that almost got bought by Visa for $5 billion until that deal fell apart in what many call a blessing in disguise. Yes. And last year was valued at more than $13 billion. So the big drama this week <laughs> is that Stripe announced a new product called Financial Connections, which lets Stripe customers connect 
directly to their customers' bank accounts to access financial data for certain transactions. Well, and, and, and Marianne, <laughs> mm-hmm. what is Plaid's core business? Yes. What does Plaid do for money? Well, it connects its customers directly to their customers' bank accounts to access financial data for certain transactions. Whoa, okay, sounds familiar, right? I mean, they're doing the exact same thing. And so, okay, competition in fintech is nothing new. But the reason why this particular new product caused a lot of drama. Stripe and Plaid were actually once partnered. They were partnered and they worked on these kind of integrations together. And so when one of their product managers announced this yesterday on Twitter, Plaid CEO, Zach Parrott, he reacted. And he, even though he declined an interview with us, and I don't know if he's been talking to any other media, he did not shy away from commenting on social media. And Can you read it yeah, for us? Just the whole thing verbatim. It's, <laughs> it's so, so good. good. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm pulling it up. Wow, Jay, you took interviews with Plaid and asked probing questions multiple times over the past few years, and your team sent repeated RFPs under NDA, exclamation point, to us asking for tons of detailed data. I wish you all the best with these products, but surprising to see the methods. Oh my God. Like... (laughs) Shots fired. Someone commented being like, all is fair in love and war. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't understand. I, I mean, one, my first reaction was, I'm so thankful that I now have a data point to talk to, to use when I talk to investors. And I'm like, what happens if all of your companies pivot or if like things become competitive and they originally weren't? And they were like, Ed, it'll happen. It was fine. We'll always figure it out. It's always, <laughs> it's not, not always so rosy. And this is just like, again, I feel like these snapshots are becoming rarer and rarer, which I'm happy about. But at this point, still a rare-ish snapshot of a CEO defending themselves mm-hmm. in a time when fintech clearly is experiencing some sort of reckoning. It's coming. And so I was just like, uh, I was just like, this is so much to talk about. Such an equity topic. I mean, yeah. It is. And it's not over. Like, I'm pretty sure it's not. I mean, and I have a lot of details that I plan to share in my newsletter on Sunday. So if you're not signed up, you should sign up now. The interchange. TechCrunch.com. <laughs> there you go. I was about to say. slash newsletter. TechCrunch.com slash newsletters. Yep. Yeah, just I've talked to a lot of people and those who are in the know in the fintech industry aren't exactly shocked by this move. Uh, Sheil, the VC. From Better Tomorrow. Yeah. Thank you. I jumped into that with about one third of the facts I needed to finish the sentence. Thank God for you too. (laughs) Sheil said that after he tweeted about this, people jumped into his DMs discussing similar behavior from Stripe. And you know, the old saying that behind every great American fortune, there's a crime. Well, between every nearly a centicorn, there's probably a lot of broken pieces from things, right? You don't get to be that big by being super cuddly and warm and kind in a Mm -hmm. highly competitive capitalist environment. I will say the product manager from Stripe did fire back at Zach, (laughs) for lack of a better phrase. And by that, I mean he replied to the tweet in the thread. I don't know how much that helped the situation. I think that Zach's comments uh, were, I mean, I land a little bit more on the Zach side of this than the Stripe side, if that makes sense. Is that where you guys are too? I like that. I like to hear that. I'm trying to be an objective reporter here, but (laughs) evidence that keeps coming up, as you said, Alex, does point to previous behavior on the part of Stripe that doesn't make this entirely surprising. And one of those things is that they kind of threw a hissy fit when one of their main investors backed a company that could be kind of a competitor to it. And then that investor ended up, well, backing out. But since they've already like committed the money, the startup ended up getting to keep the money, but not yeah. that particular firm as an investor. So that just gives you an idea, you know? That 
Ryan Breslow. This is like, there's so many different no. kind of things that have come. No, I'm, I'm saying in addition. Oh, but his, tra- yeah, it's yeah, It's just yeah, like yeah, crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. Fintech is the most dramatic beat right now. I'm, I'm happy to be starting to report more on it, but I'm also very happy you've been doing it. So I can turn to you when any of this happens. <laughs> I like kind of the Fintech dusting on my life, you know, kind of a little bit here and there as like a, a seasoning. I, I don't want to eat the main entree because it's like the size of a you know whole cow. <laughs> you know, we were like, let's have some more drama in tech and then we got it. I think that's still the right thing because it is clarifying to see this kind of argumentation because if Zach hadn't said this and we emailed Plaid and we said, dear Plaid comms team, how do you feel about Stripe jumping into your business? They would say, oh, we welcome competition. Stripe is a leading company. We're going to, but in reality, they were pissed and it's good to get the actual non-bullshit take. Like that's what Twitter is, is good for, I think, by the way, providing direct access to people that are usually occluded behind layers and layers of boring people who try to get them to not say interesting things. I love this. And I, I think Zach was also quite vocal on is it Hacker News, where he, he actually engaged in a debate with a Stripe employee about what, how the two things were different, like how what Plaid's doing is different from Stripe and, and on and on. So they went back and forth also publicly there as well. So agreed. I like I appreciate that these CEOs are not afraid to talk about this publicly, even though they'd prefer not to talk directly to reporters, it, it seems like. But I appreciate it because, hey, I mean, any rational person would be pissed off at this. And there's nothing wrong with being pissed off at this because, again, it's not the fact that Stripe is now competing with Platt. It's the manner in which it gathered the data information. Yes. And I'll just say this. Competition is good. And having Plaid challenged in the marketplace will yield probably better products at a better price for us, the consumers. But also, it's fun to see shenanigans get called out in a very public context. So, Zach, Thank you. We appreciate Amen. it. We got to go. Marianne, you're an absolute treat. Natasha, thank you so much. Guys, we are back Monday morning and Equity is live next week on Thursday. So come hang out with us if you can. In the meantime, Marianne's newsletter is hot. Natasha's brilliant. And we're out of here. Bye. Bye.